Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Bald Face Truth. Well, the transfer portal is uh, has turned into a stampede. <laughs> and the recruiting experts nationally have never been more tuned in. And the national guy, 24-7 sports, Brandon Huffman, is going to join us here in a moment to talk about what he sees happening. I've got a lot of questions for him. I also want to know kind of what what is going on with high school kids. Simple math will tell you, 85 scholarships, if there's 500 plus football players on scholarship who have jumped into the portal. I think there's going to be a lot of college programs that are going to uh, opt to give scholarships to those players. Does What's left over? What has that done to the high school recruiting scene? Has it squeezed the high schools? And where are those kids going? Are they going to the Big Sky Conference? Community colleges? Are they walking on? What's happening? Brandon Huffman. National recruiting editor, twenty four seven sports, joining us now. You've been busy, man. How you doing? Uh, I'm exhausted. It is a busy time of year between the coaching carousel, the transfer portal, official visits. I'm already looking forward to the holiday season because that means everything slows down for a little bit. <laughs> how to give us an idea of how that's changed for you over the years? You've done this for a while. How has the transfer portal complicated this time of year for you? I wouldn't say it's complicated. I think because recruiting has been expedited so much sooner in the process with schools trying to get their classes done by June every year, you know that come November, December, you're gearing up for the coaching carousel and the portal, and you're prepared for it. What what it's doing is it's making your pivot, instead of just covering high school recruits, you're basically getting ready to cover guys' second recruitment or third recruitment. And so... It's, you know, just added a whole other dimension and layer of stuff you have to track. No longer can you unfollow a kid after he commits. Now you might have to keep following him because you got to figure out what the second and third recruitment is going to end up like. Interesting. I, I think that's funny that and, and interesting. I hadn't thought about that. But, uh, you know, a kid like Aiden Childs goes to Oregon State mm-hmm. and now is in the portal. Uh, where where's What's the market for a player like Aiden Childs? Or, or do we just assume he's going to follow Jonathan Smith to Michigan State? Yeah, I mean, I think it's safe to assume. I called my shot yesterday that I think it's going to be Michigan State. But make no mistake, there's still a market. You know, if you're Michigan State and you know you've got to turn things around quickly, you I mean, we saw it in the first two years of Mel Tucker there. Michigan State was definitely playing the NIL game. And it might not just be Aiden Childs, but it's every player that's going to follow Michigan State. They need kind of a, you know, make this, this thing happen quickly remedy, and NIL will help that. But I think – you know, depending on if you're a stopgap guy who might just be that missing piece at quarterback, or if you're in the case of Aiden Childs or Dante Moore, you know you're going to get at least two years of those guys. You might have more value because you've got multiple years. You're going to be a part of that program. But there is certainly a market, and Aiden, there's a reason that he's one of the top two or three quarterbacks in the transfer portal already. DJ Uyunglele, similar thing. He leaves Oregon State. I saw him. Uh, in Las Vegas. I bumped into him. He's the first person I bumped into outside the stadium. It was really weird. Uh, and I just kind of hey, wished him well, and I told him, stay in touch. But I'm kind of looking at him, and he's got some, 
you know, does where does DJ end up, or does he decide he goes to play baseball, or does he decide to declare for the draft and see what happens? Uh, Brandon, how do you read DJ's next uh, move? There's a lot of buzz right now about Florida State, which would be pretty fascinating considering he left the ACC, and at the time, you know, Clemson was the ACC champs when he left. You know, he helped lead them to that ACC title. Now he might be going back to the ACC to play at Florida State, who, you know, I think with the injury of Jordan Travis, obviously, besides being left out of the, the playoff race, Tate Rodemaker and Brocklin might not have inspired enough confidence in Mike Norvell. So now DJ, who was a known quantity, he did start two years. And in fairness to DJ, I've said this all along, he was being unfairly judged against Trevor Lawrence and Deshaun Watson as a player. If you look at what he did at Clemson, he actually had a pretty nice career, but compared to those Clemson guys, maybe not. So I think there's going to be a market, and it's not a surprise that Florida State is involved there because they may have some young guys that they like. Luke Cromenhoek's their 2024 commit. DJ allows them to not have to rush Luke Cromenhoek next year. It gives them an experienced guy. So keep an eye on the Seminoles for DJ. I like that. Brandon Huffman, 24-7 Sports National Recruiting Editor here. You mentioned the college coaching carousel and then the conjunction of the portal. Have you seen a shift in the kinds of coaches that are being hired? Is is there a bigger emphasis on recruiting with the portal being so important? No, not not as much as it, it used to be. And I think that, you know, you when you saw what Lincoln Riley did and what Dan Lanning did and, you know, what, you know, uh, Kellen DeBoer did at Washington, bringing in guys that they had familiarity with. Lincoln Riley bringing Caleb Williams. Bo Nix coming with Kenny Dillingham. Michael Penix, who had played for Nick Sheridan, Kellen DeBoer coming. Now it's, hey, if we bring this coach, he might have players at his previous school that want to play with him. Say no more about Aiden Childs potentially going to Michigan State. So recruiting is not as important. It's does their system attract players? Can we have a quicker fix because their system will attract players who want to play in that system? We saw even at Colorado with Travis Hunter and Shadur Sanders following Dion. Now it's more about who can you bring with you than can you recruit long-term because the portal will help you fix that problem every year. Now, it doesn't mean everybody's going to be good from the portal, but the portal is now making recruiting a little bit more obsolete in a lot of cases. Interesting. Cam Ward, a lot of Washington State fans want to know uh, if there was anything they could have done to keep him. Uh, the conference uncertainty is certainly at play, but there's some NIL money out there for him as well. What are you hearing about Cam Ward? So there's a lot of buzz about Ohio State with Cam Ward, and given that on Sunday Ryan Day was noncommittal to Kyle McCord, and then Kyle McCord first thing Monday morning goes into the portal despite starting 12 games, having a top 5-17 to 17 all year long, winning 11 games, and much like DJ being unfairly compared to Deshaun Watson, Trevor Lawrence, Kyle McCord was 11-1 as a starter, but he's being compared to Justin Fields and C.J. Stroud and Dwayne Haskins and, you know, Cardale Jones and Braxton Miller. So, you know, he all of a sudden is not as good as maybe those guys were. So Cam Ward, with the athleticism that he has, Maybe he's more of a fit to what Justin Fields and C.J. Stroud did, and there's a lot of talk about Ohio State being in the driver's seat to potentially land Cam Ward. And, you know, the irony in all this is, remember when Cam Ward got to Pullman, he got the truck, and now all of a sudden it's a bad thing that he's chasing NIL. You know, yeah, (laughs) is his value way more than it was with the truck? Absolutely. But let's not act like he wasn't getting NIL perks when he got to Washington State in the first place. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's funny because I was all over that at the beginning, and I, I talked to the Cougar Collective when they got Cam Ward, and 
they were happy to kind of talk about the fact that he got $50,000 and he got the truck and he got an apartment and his whole package was worth 80 or 90,000 but now 80 or 90,000 is not buying you a starting quarterback what is the market for for a starting quarterback right now in major college football yeah, I mean, I think it's realistic to think that a big-time impact type of quarterback can command seven digits, and that's why I think if you're a one-year stopgap guy who might be that difference maker, you know, a Sam Hartman type, a guy that had a great career elsewhere, but now Notre Dame thinks he might be the missing piece after what they're dealing with, you know, a guy like a, you know Ohio State saying, hey, we've got all the talent, but our quarterback play isn't there. You, you know, when Ryan Day and Matt Rule are coming out with actual hard numbers, that tells you what the market is. I also think that the younger guys, like a Dante Moore, Naden Childs, may command more because you know you're going to get two years of them. They can't transfer again. But I don't think every quarterback going into the portal is going to get what they think that they're valued. There's going to be a lot of quarterbacks that are going to be, you know, picked apart and say, hey, you know what? You were pretty mediocre and you were pretty average at your previous school. Why would you think that you're going to get a starting job and all this money? I think it's very isolated to the top five to seven, maybe ten quarterbacks available to get, you know, 750 to a million plus. But it's pretty incredible when you look at Caleb Williams. When he went to USC, the million dollars that he got was almost all lined up with the endorsements, with, you know, Beats by Dre, with United Airlines. Now it's straight up coming out of the collective's pocket, and there's a lot more where that money came from because schools are desperate for a win and just for desperate for a championship, so they will pay whatever they can get for a market-ready quarterback. At what point of the recruitment is NIL coming up in that conversation? Oh, early, and it's fascinating. I'll talk to college coaches, and they'll hold the junior day. They'll hold, you know, a meet-and-greet, and they'll say, can you believe these kids? They come in. We gave them an offer. Like, your NIL is the NLI we're going to send you. That's all you're worth. And these kids are all thinking that they're going to be getting – Caleb Williams type NIL deals, Jaden Rashada type NIL deals. The reality is most of these kids are going to get the NLI to sign, and there may be like, you know, a school says, hey, all 25 players are getting 30000 a scooter and cheaper rent. But a lot of these kids think they're getting number one overall player money, and they're not. But it's coming up much quicker in the recruiting process with kids. Now kids are not, hey, I, don't, I want to see your facilities. Those don't, they don't care about that anymore. They don't care about the photo shoots. They want to meet with the collectives on unofficial visits and try to get business deals locked in. And this is where coaches are being blown away. But the funny part about all that is, is coaches are still playing the games and they're going and they're milking. We saw it with South Carolina last week. I think it was, you know, Shane Beamer was saying, hey, you know, if we could give this much money, you know, uh, he's calling people, all our fans need to give X amount of dollars. You know, they're trying to milk these dollars out of every booster that they can because they know they've let the genie out of the bottle. Trent Bray, Oregon State coach, came on yesterday's show, and he said, hey, it's a problem. It's a big problem. There were other coaches who are in contact with our players prior to the end of the season. Nothing can be done about it. How much of that is going on? You know, And, and again, players are going to have relationships with assistant coaches that have recruited them, but how much of that is going on during the season, Brandon? Plenty, and it's going on everywhere and anywhere, and it's usually pretty one-sided. It's Mostly the schools reaching out to trainers, to private coaches that the players may have had, high school coaches, anybody in their circle to, to gauge the temperature, to see 
what are the chances of that kid, A, going into the portal, B, being interested in that school if he goes in the portal, and C, what's he going to need to make that school the choice? So it's happening. I mean, the groundwork's being laid. I, I don't know if you remember when Nick Rolovich got hired at Washington State in 2020, he hired a director of transfer recruiting, which in 2020, that was mind-blowing. And that's how that was before NIL became a factor. Now, it's almost like schools are hiring their own internal capologists to figure out how to budget when they reach out to a kid who's at a school and, you know, it's real obvious he's not going to return to that school. They'll start gauging what are the chances he goes in the portal, what are our chances of getting him, and what's he going to cost. And now these schools now understand this is what it's going to cost to get him. He can either afford it or we have to lower our expectations and go somewhere cheaper, and they're trying to lay the groundwork to eight, ten different schools, or eight to ten different players, to make sure that they, you know, fill that spot, but it's going on way more, it's, it's not even the dirty little secret anymore, I think it's well known that, you know, the FCS and the G5 schools are essentially open seasoned on. Brandon Huffman, he is the national recruiting editor for 24-7 Sports, uh, all over the recruiting landscape. Uh, I've been thinking about Oregon State, they're in a tough spot without a conference, you're going to play a Mountain West partnership schedule. They're existing in this space, Brandon, that's somewhere between a Power Four and maybe eventual relegation to the Mountain West, but they, they're trying to draw a line between themselves and the Mountain West. Will kids on the Mountain West rosters see Oregon State as a step up because of the facilities or maybe the potential, or can they recruit and, and basically poach the Mountain West schools? Yeah, I, I mean, this is going to be painful for Oregon State fans to hear and Washington State fans, but, you know, your best comp right now is Boise State, that, you know, you can still recruit high-end players because you're putting guys into the league, you're getting guys drafted, you get scouts coming to campus, those guys are successful, but, you know, I don't think, like, Ashton Junkie today deciding to go back to Boise State, that's huge. That's going to be an exception to the rule rather than the rule of G5 schools holding on to guys like that. But Oregon State and Washington State both have the advantage of all those years of being Power 5 schools, but that's not going to go away. Even though they may be playing a Mountain West-type schedule, in most kids' minds, in most high school coaches' minds, and college coaches' minds, Oregon State and Washington State are still Power 5 schools, even if their conference affiliation doesn't say so. So I think they're still going to be able to you know, punch above their weight when it comes to the schools they'll be playing against, but it's certainly going to make it that much more difficult to maintain that for the next five to seven years unless their future is a little bit more stable in terms of their conference. Yeah, I think it's important that they kind of view this as like 24 months, two years, get somewhere, see if there's chaos, try to get to the Big 12, try to get to whatever uh, you know forms on the horizon in college athletics. Meanwhile, I'm Brandon, I'm thinking about high school kids. I mentioned it during your intro. I'm kind of wondering, just from a simple numbers standpoint, if fewer high school kids will get offered, or what do what does a talented or a you know a, a low end scholarship kid in in high school what is he doing right now? He's he's panicking. You know, I, I talked to a, a coach about an hour ago, and his player had multiple FBS offers and was planning to take visits to both of those schools the next two weekends, and then the schools came back and said, hey. You know what? I know we offered him. I know we were going to bring him in for an official visit, but we're going into the portal. We need to get guys that can play right now. And now these kids are scrambling. And guys that didn't make a decision before the fall, and that's where it goes back to the calendar speeding up, with schools now trying to get 90% of their class done by June so they can focus on the portal or focus on the next year's class. If you didn't make a decision by then, 
you're hoping that an FCS school takes you, and then you bet on yourself and maybe go to an FCS school, prove it for two or three years, and then transfer up. But guys that have waited a little bit longer to make their decision, there's not really a decision to be made anymore because their options have now waned. Man, it's, that's that's nuts. And I, and I keep, like I wrote today that maybe what should happen is, you know, because I've talked to college coaches who say, well, why would I give a scholarship to a freshman when I know in two years – you know, he's not going to help me in the next two years, and in two years he's a threat to leave. Why not invest that scholarship in a player who can play right now? You know, I, I kind of wonder, Brandon, if the solution from the NCAA is to say, hey, you've got to you've got to give a minimum of five or seven scholarships to freshmen. I, I mean, I think that in a perfect world that would happen, but what what's now happening is you're and you're seeing it with FCS schools. You're seeing these guys are the ones that have always done a really good job of evaluating and developing. And so these FCS schools are now getting better players than they ever were, but then they know they're losing them in two years. So I think if the NCAA kind of mandated that you've got to bring in high school players, sure schools will do that, but then in a year from now they'll just say, Hey, you know what, we brought you in only because we had to. Why don't you go look at the portal and go somewhere where you actually can play? And, and that's what's happening. Even with highly talented players, they're being shown the door. They're being forced out and processed out. So even if the ACA mandates that you got to give a certain amount of scholarship, all that school's going to do is turn around and turn that guy loose in a year from now anyway. And, you know, today, uh, Teddy Buchanan, who was a three-year starter at, at, at uh, UC Davis, he had only G5 offers. His only G5 offer was Air Force. He had all FCS offers. He goes to Davis, stars for them for three years, goes in the portal, and now he's going to finish his career at Cal. That's what's happening more and more. The big sky schools that were getting the Cooper Cup type of players, the Vernon Adams, you know, remember when Vernon Adams made the jump from Eastern to Oregon and everybody said, oh, my gosh, how could this guy jump from the big sky to the Pac-12? Now you're seeing 15 to 20 big sky guys jumping to Power 5 each and every year. And But for every Vernon Adams, you get a Dakota Proof Cup. So these FCS schools know that if they get a guy and he flourishes, there's a good chance that kid's never going to finish his eligibility at that school. Wow. I, I think it's it's all very uh, fluid and unfolding. Uh, Oregon's been busy. Dan Lanning, the Oregon coach, he was at a number of high schools. He must be, he and Joe Lorig and a couple other assistants, Junior Adams, must be flying around the West Coast right now. Uh, making visits. What are they getting out of these drop-ins on high school campuses? Well, that's the thing about Oregon is that they're such a brand that they can go pretty much and still in the month of December be in it for a lot of still uncommitted top 2024 guys. But more importantly, they're trying to get face time with the 25s and the 26s. So while they were in Idaho yesterday to go see Gatlin Bear, who was formerly committed to Boise State, they did the in-home. They're going back out to schools to make sure that their 2024 commits that they're recruiting know that they still want it. But then also for those 25s and 26s to understand, hey, in crunch time, Oregon came to my school to check in on me man, they really want me. So that's the value is that it's not just locking up your final players in the 2024 class. It's making sure that those underclassmen you're recruiting know you are high on our board and we're using one of our precious visit days to come to your school to see you. Yeah, yesterday, uh, in addition to Idaho, they were in West Lynn, Oregon, visiting Josiah Molden and uh, West Lynn's campus and you know, getting a lot of FaceTime there. Brandon, uh, you're doing a hell of a job. Uh, I know that there's a lot more to you than than college uh, recruiting, and over the years we've talked about Avery. And uh, can you give us the latest on the mission to kind of raise awareness and uh, and raise some funds and the Avery Huffman uh, Foundation? 
Yes, absolutely. I appreciate that, John. We just this year we celebrated the raising of over a million dollars since our inception as a foundation, which was started seven and a half years ago. And to raise a million dollars, especially during a COVID time, was fascinating. We've been able to support a number of different projects. We had two projects that we're supporting, one at Stanford University and one at Seattle Children's Hospital. And those are two of the most cutting edge DIPG research labs in the world. People are coming from all over the United States to get treatment at Seattle Children's Hospital. And one of the doctors there who has been doing this groundbreaking research, our foundation has been supporting. And this, the lab that he came from at Stanford is the other one doing groundbreaking research. And so we know that our funds that are going to these labs are making a difference. They're making they're moving mountains, and we are so grateful for the support that we've been getting. And we're, you know, we're not stopping until there is a cure. And so it motivates us each and every day. We're doing our end of year fundraising for 2023, but just know that we're moving mountains, and the people that are really smart and really good at this are doing everything they can because they're committed to the mission too. People who don't know, uh, Brandon's daughter Avery, diagnosed with an inoperable cancerous brain tumor, DIPG. Um, and that was in June of 2015, and Avery would have been 15 on October 19th of this year. And if, you, uh, if you'd like to read the letters that the family has written to Avery, I'm not going to be able to get through this. AveryStrongDIPG.org. Brandon, thank you. Thank you, John. Appreciate you. Good stuff from Brandon. I need a commercial break. I hope you go to AveryStrongDIPG.org. Good stuff with Brandon Hoffman, 24-7 Sports. I want to thank Jerry Palm, CBS Sports, who joined us in Hour 1. Trent Bray was on yesterday's show. If you missed the podcast of that, go get it. Uh, I'm efforting Sean Lewis, the San Diego State new head coach. He was the offensive coordinator at Colorado. I'd like to get Sean Lewis on the show to talk about his experience at Colorado, what he sees for San Diego State's program. Uh, and kind of what a coach who saw Oregon State from like the outside in in the Pac-12, what he views the Oregon State-Washington State partnership in this next year like as a coach that will be competing against them, but not really. Like they're not going to compete for a conference championship. They'll just be playing everybody. I think it's an interesting position for Washington State and Oregon State to assume. Uh, Anna will be coming along here later in the program. For those of you who offered your empathy, and your advice for the trauma traumatizing uh, experience that I had on uh, an airline flight uh, last week as a uh, man and a woman accused me of stealing their seat. Damn it. Um, I thank you all for reaching out. I had a lot of people who reached out and said, man, you guys, what you, know, you, were, you were victimized. And I, anytime you want to tell me that I'm a victim, I'm all about that. I'm all for it. All I know, John, is I yeah. was not one of those people, and my son was not one of those people either. <laughs> he, uh, first thing I get home, my wife, my wife tells me how funny of a segment that was, and then my son goes, "Hey, Dad, why did John Canzano take that woman's seats?" Exactly. That was the first See? thing he said to me. See, I am up against it. For people who missed it, uh, we're on an Alaska flight. I'll give you the Cliff Notes version, and uh, you know Anna's coming along for the ride, and I decided the pl- the tickets were expensive anyway. It was just a little more to upgrade to first class. I had bought them early enough, and so I said, okay, at least on the way there, we're going to travel first class. On the way back, we're on a different airline. We're on Southwest, and we're with everybody else. And so I said, you know what? Let's go first class. 
And so right before the plane is going to take off, we're in row four. All of a sudden, I get a notification. We're in row one. Like, they changed our seat. I was confused by it, but I rolled with it, you know, because I'm not that guy. Got on the plane. was friendly with the flight attendants. Took our seats in row one. Stuffed our stuff overhead. And here comes two passengers, including a woman named Karen, who says, you're in our seat. You stole our seat. That's what they said. And I said, well, we were in row four. They moved us to one. And it turns out they changed planes right before the the uh, plane was going to take off. And they had to eliminate one row. And they must have, they have some criteria that they use. I don't know if I fly more than they do or if we paid more than than they do. But blame the airline. Don't blame me. And so they had to go back to coach. And, you know, they demanded their first class meals. So the flight attendant said, yes, we'll bring your meals back, which is kind of weird. That's an awkward thing. You're sitting, you know, back in coach, and all of a sudden you've got a tray, and, you know, and and so I didn't think of uh, about it again. I, I I just forgot about it. It wasn't a big deal to me, and and then Karen uh, posted on my bald face truth Facebook page that I had stolen her seat and I should be ashamed of myself and that I'm privileged, and some of that's true, but the stolen the seat stealing the seat thing is not true, and uh, I I wrote a. Uh, uh, a very pointed response to her on Facebook. And then right before I hit post, Anna said, let me read that. And she laundered it down to be much kinder and gentler. And, uh, you know, hey, we're disappointed, uh, but we didn't steal your seats. Uh, the point, the bottom line is, I sang you the screenshot of what she wrote. I think she's out of line. I think you're. I think she's out of line. But I tell you what, my uh, nine-year-old thinks you're out of line. So you know, <laughs> who am I to argue with him? You know, oh, he's man. got his own opinion. I'm not going to tell him he's wrong. Uh, here's the, my favorite part of this. Is I know our listeners have a sense of humor, okay? I know the next time I see our listeners on a plane, they're going to be like, you stole my seat. <laughs> I know that's going to happen. I'm going to be cursed with this. Uh, but Karen, uh, and that's her real name, um, Karen posted on the Facebook page, I posted the response that Anna really wrote, and then I messaged the same response to Karen. I hope she sees it. She's trying to publicly shame me, you know. And uh, and I, I'm not trying to publicly shame her. I'm not using her name here. I, I just think sometimes you got to step back and know that you're talking about a first-class seat. It's a first-world problem. And most people are going to go, get over yourselves. Why are we even talking about this? Uh, uh, other than I think the fact remains... I didn't do a damn thing wrong, and I got vilified for it. All right, let's play some Punch It Audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth. Sorry to interrupt the podcast, but if you want to listen to more of the Bald Face Truth Radio Show, including more of this segment that you're listening to, make sure you subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes to the Bald Face Truth Radio Show. Thanks for listening.